Hello and welcome to this Bible study recorded at Christ Church Waco. I'm Father Lee Nelson, the rector of the parish, and we've been looking through 1 Peter chapter 2. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Most loving Father, you will us to give thanks for all things, to dread nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all our care on the one who cares for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal, and which you have manifested unto us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, we're continuing on with this Bible study of First Peter chapter 2, and it's uh, very good to have uh, this ability to record these uh, messages. Um, I'm very much... Uh, uh, taking time at home these days, uh, like all of you are, uh, quarantined at home or uh, sheltering in place, and uh, it's good to know that I can come here and record these for you so that you can uh, listen to them when you decide to. Um, we're talking about First Peter, and it is a letter that uh, is said to be written by uh, Peter. In fact, the letter itself says that it is written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've talked in previous sessions of this study about how that authorship uh, may be the case and how uh, we can follow that and how we can see that. Um, there are, uh, as we've said in the past, two different dating schemes for this letter. One says that it's written in the mid-60s in the first century. The other one says that it's written in about 81. And the reason for that is that uh, if it's written to a persecuted church meeting in uh, Asia Minor and throughout that, again, this is written to exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, um, those churches underwent a persecution under uh, the Emperor Domitian in uh, or Diocletian in the uh, uh, beginning of the 80s in the first century. Peter was martyred, if we follow the traditional date, somewhere between 64 and 66 AD. Uh, so obviously uh, the letter could not be written by him at the moment, at the time, to those uh, exiles. If you follow the later dating, if you follow the early dating, then these are people who are not undergoing persecution, uh, but it's written by a persecuted church to churches that are not persecuted in that way. And that's actually a very good reading of First Peter. The other way to read it is to say that uh, these... Um, this letter is some kind of sermon, perhaps, written or originally given by Peter himself, and that's later sent on to those churches as a circular letter to those churches, meant to be sent around to those various churches. Um, as we get into chapter 2, I want to give a bit of review of chapter 1. Uh, Peter is writing to them and reminding them of the living hope which they have in, in these churches, uh, as, as do all Christians. Uh, in the fact that they've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we will look later, especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4, about how these Christians have been uh, brought into the realities of that resurrection, how they have been included in the reality of that resurrection. It is the resurrection from the Jesus, from, of Jesus Christ from the dead which is to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's clear that in the world that these Christians inhabit, uh, they are experiencing uh, things that are perishable, things that are defiled, and things that are fading. And he calls them to focus upon this inheritance which is theirs in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, uh, that inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is more precious, he will say later, than gold or silver, which uh, does not uh, burn up in the fire. 
And he speaks of how their faith will is tested in the fire, uh, and he prays that it will be more, uh, more valuable, more precious, more enduring, more uh, imperishable than gold. He says, in, finally, in verse 21, uh, Through him, through Jesus, you have confidence in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is written to Christians whose place in society is very uncertain, very difficult, very challenged. Um, they're not loved or admired by their neighbors. They're not feeling particularly uh, secure. And yet God, Peter is writing to them of this imperishable hope that they have in Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead and speaking of the confidence that they should have in God who did this. And then he calls upon them, since they've been purified, their souls have been purified by this obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren, he calls upon them to love one another earnestly from the heart. What does earnest mean? Uh, without uh, confusion, uh, without lies, without fabrication, uh, honestly to love one another. You have been born anew, he says in verse 23 of chapter 1. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. We keep hearing this word imperishable. That the seed of which they have been born anew through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is imperishable. Well, how has this happened? We're going to read later how Peter is calling them to think about the reality which they have as a baptized people who have been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection who have appealed to God for a pure conscience uh, to live righteously in the world. You have been born anew, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Here he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. This was well known to the church in those days. It was well known uh, to most Jews. And uh, if these are Gentile Christians, it would have been well known to them. The word that has been preached, the word that, has, that abides forever, is the good news that has been preached to them. These are people who have received the good news. They've responded by putting their faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized into his death and resurrection. It's on those grounds that we turn to chapter 2. Keep that as the background. The, the whole uh, foundation of Peter's message is built upon this foundation of being born of imperishable seed uh, by receiving the Word of God, which has been preached to them, and by being baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. It's on those grounds that he appeals to them in chapter 2. So put away all malice and all guile and sincere and insincerity and envy and all slander. Uh, it's clear that potentially in the church uh, there, and I would imagine that it's true, uh, there's malice and there's guile and there's insincerity and there's envy and there's slander. Christians have for 20 centuries uh, committed acts of malice against one another, acts of guile against one another have been insincere with one another, have envied one another, have slandered one another. This is not new. But he says, put it away. Put it away. 
Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. This is wonderful. He's, he's speaking of them as babies who rely upon their mother's milk for their sustenance. A very basic food. A very basic form of sustenance. And this actually fits with what happened in the ancient church, and it may have happened in the first century, that Christians were fed milk as soon as they came up out of the baptismal waters as a sign of the kind of teaching that they would receive at that time. Sometimes they would also get honey on the tongue. Like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk, that basic teaching, that basic teaching of the gospel, which grows us up to salvation, that by it you may grow up to salvation. And we don't often talk about Christians growing up to salvation. We think that Christians have salvation and then they grow. But here it's a little different. Peter says that by it you may grow up to salvation. Salvation is, in this sense, something that you grow into. Why? Because we are growing up into the person, into what the prayer book says, the full stature, as Paul says too, the full stature of Christ. He says, for you have tasted the kindness of the Lord just like a baby tastes the kindness of their mother. So they're they're being called to this pure spiritual milk of the preaching of the Word of God which has brought them to faith. And he's calling them back to it. Um, I can say this, that very often what happens uh, in, in churches is that people get very advanced, they get very uh, knowledgeable, and as Paul says, knowledge puffs up. And they tend to think that, well, they look down on one another, they say, oh, you know, you couldn't possibly uh, uh, see things rightly. And he's calling them back to that basic teaching. Come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious and like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is speaking to what we've spoken about in the past in this study uh, about the kind of calling that is upon these people who are receiving this letter. And indeed, it's a calling that all Christians have. It's to obedience and to not only be obedient children who are holy in conduct, but to be a priestly people who carry out priestly action in the world. Well, what does it mean to carry forth forth priestly action? I'm going to go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. He says that these exiles of the dispersion to whom he's writing are chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, anyone reading this with any knowledge of the Old Testament at all would remember that wonderful scene in the book of Exodus where Moses slaughters two bulls and he he consecrates the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of one bull. And with the blood of the other, he goes around and he douses the people in the blood and he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant. The people have made a covenant through accepting the commandments of God. And we're going to be reading this in the morning, in morning, in the morning prayer office uh, soon. And they become a kingdom of priests. Now, there are still priests, Aaron and his sons and others. But, but the kingdom uh, of, of the people, the Jewish people, and the, the kingdom of Israel, 
is a holy priesthood to the Lord. And they've been consecrated in blood for that purpose. Now, he says of these exiles, the dispersion, as he would say of all Christians, that they have been chosen, that's the first thing, chosen. Uh, To be a member of the church means to be a member of God's chosen body. That's what the word ecclesia means. It means called out people who have been called. Not only chosen, but destined that God has had an everlasting purpose in the people of God. Chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of His blood. What do you see there? You should hear immediately that it is a very highly Trinitarian format that's being given here. It is sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Chosen and destined by the Father. Do you see what's going on here? The Christian life is a Trinitarian life that's sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And many people often think, well, I'm sanctified. No need to be obedient, right? Uh, And some people will say, well, I'm obedient. I do everything that I'm commanded. I do everything that the Lord has commanded. But, But no need to be sanctified because I've done it. But the Christian life is defined by both, by both being sanctified and being not only sanctified, but sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ. So these are people that have been sprinkled with his blood and they are being built. This is where we get to verse 5 of chapter 2. They are being built like living stones into a spiritual and holy priesthood. He just says holy, a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, let's say where the rubber meets the road here just a bit. It's highly possible that if this letter is written after the, or, or at least distributed around the time of Peter's, uh, Peter's martyrdom in the mid-60s, then the destruction of the temple is certainly coming and Peter would have known about it because Jesus prophesied about it. It's also possible that the letter is written after that time and amended a bit by the church or mended a bit by some kind of apostolic authority, perhaps Peter's successor at the time, to be sent out to this church. Either way, what's going on is that either the destruction of the temple is imminent or it is already past, and it is highly possible that these are Jewish Christians living in exile in Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, and they're wondering, how can, we, how, how can we be God's people without this temple? It's also possible they're living there in the early, in the mid-60s, and they are bereft of the presence of God in the temple. Of course, even if they were in the temple in the first century and going to the temple and living close to the temple, they were bereft of God's presence anyway because he'd gone. Only to come back in Jesus Christ. And this is the message of Peter, that you as a holy priesthood, are the very temple of God in the world. You. And, and I am convinced that you know, he's writing that to us too. He's writing this to us who are the people of God to say you are a holy priesthood and you are being built like living stones to be the very temple of God in the world, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is the sacrifice that we're called to? We read today in the Eucharist 
Psalm 40, what, what is the sacrifice? Is it the sacrifice of blood and burnt offerings on the altar? No. This is where, this is where David in Psalm 40 says, Sat burnt offerings and sacrifices you have not desired. And so I said, Behold, I come. I come. And so I've come to you. This is the sacrifice which is acceptable to Jesus Christ. It is the sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit. It is the sacrifice of a living body. It is the sacrifice of surrender to the will of God. It is the sacrifice of, of holding back nothing of ourselves before the living God. And by that, to operate as priests within this world. Now, what does a priest do? We've, we've, not, we've mentioned that in past studies, but I haven't done it online yet. What does a priest do? I mean, I'm a priest, and so I do priestly things, and you're a priest in a different sense, in a different order. Um, but, but what does a priest do? Well, a priest is a go-between. A priest is a mediator between God and man. This is, and all of this priesthood derives from Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. So any priesthood that any Christian or any priest has is derived from that uh, that identity, that uh, that priesthood. So when we speak about priesthood and the kind of priesthood that Christians exercise in the world, we're talking about a mediatorial sacrifice between God and man. And so when we as Christians sacrifice our lives before God, when we make acceptable spiritual sacrifices to Jesus Christ, by the offering of our wills to God, by the offering and the sacrifice of our wills before God, what happens? We are making a sacrifice on behalf of the world to God. And what does he do? He gives himself to us. Today's the Feast of the Annunciation, and I can never get tired of talking about this, but, but what do we see in Mary on the Feast of the Annunciation? She gives herself completely without reserve to God the Father. And he gives himself to her. He gives his only begotten son to her to take up residence in her very body. She gives himself to him. She gives herself to her. She gives herself to him. He gives himself to her. It's the completion of the whole covenantal life of the people of God. I will be your God and you will be my people. The, the author, Peter, continues. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. We know who the cornerstone is. It is, it is Jesus Christ living and active in his church who sets the very straight lines that that building can follow. To you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, and a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall. For they stumble because they disobey the word as they were chosen to do. So there are those who surround this church operating in Asia, in Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus, and they are stumbling over the message of these early Christians 
that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the world. They're exercising this priestly ministry within the world that is meant to draw men and women and children into this living relationship with God the Father through being joined to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they are stumbling all over it. It's too much. It's too hard. It's too strange. It's too odd. It's too otherworldly. And therefore, the people that are that that are in this church are 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 they're having the hardest time, <laughs> and they feel at odds, and they feel weird, and they feel exiled, and they feel like aliens. And Paul is in part asking them, own that status, own that status of being strange and being aliens and being exiles, for that is what you are. I recalled uh, two weeks ago at the Bible study when we actually had it in the flesh uh, that, uh, that Flannery O'Connor once said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. And it's still very true today. Christians are odd. And here's what Peter says to them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, Now, we know that the people of God, the church, are not defined by one race or another. Many races. What is being said here? That we are a people. A royal priesthood. A kingly people. A holy nation. God's own people. And he's going to continue on to define that further. But he says, why have you been chosen? What is is the purpose of this choosing? And the purpose is this, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were no people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, so you know, whatever they thought of themselves before is nothing compared to being a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, set with declaring the wonderful deeds of this God who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the calling <laughs> before every Christian is to be one who proclaims and declares the wonderful deeds of God. That is our status as a holy priesthood is to offer sacrifices to God and to proclaim his wonderful deeds to the world. Both are required in order to serve this role, in order to do this well, in order to be the people that God has called us to be. And so he continues, and he he continues to use this word, aliens, exiles about them. They are far from home. And even if they're close to home, let's say they're Gentile Christians who have lived for many generations in this land, in these lands. They are still aliens and exiles. But note what he calls them in the beginning of chapter 11, or verse 11. Beloved. Beloved. I love it when a preacher uses the word beloved in preaching. It's so good. Because he's not saying, I love you. He's saying, you are loved by God, and therefore I love you, and I'm giving you a message to you as objects of love. So he says, beloved. And if you understand yourself to be beloved, you can live with being an alien. If you understand yourself to be beloved, you can live with being an exile. 
You can even live with abstaining as he calls them to, as he beseeches them to do, to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. This has always been the case that Christians always have a passion of the flesh that's warring against the soul. It can be any manner of things. It can be, it can be sexual sin. It can be hatred. It can be malice. It can be fear. It can be whatever it is that wells up in the passions of our flesh that wage war against the soul. And he says, maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Even if these are Gentile Christians, they are still a holy priesthood. And if they're Jewish Christians, they are a holy priesthood. But they are to maintain good conduct among the Gentiles. This is where we get to this next part of the letter. And it's, it's a very important one. If you feel like a weirdo or like you're odd as a Christian in the midst of this world, uh, and almost when you read this letter, it's almost like, welcome to the club. It's been going on a long time. Uh, but, but here's the thing. He's calling them to be a bit thoughtful, to be a bit cautious about that to maintain good conduct, to always do what is right. And that is right here in the midst of this of this chapter 2. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles. And further in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. This is a very difficult thing. Um, and, and I think we should say at this point that all earthly authority has a limit. Um, there is a, certainly a limit to earthly authority. There's absolutely a place where if a, uh, uh, a governor or a, a temporal authority asks you to do something, you should say no. Uh, you should say, put me in prison. You should say, uh, uh, I will submit to you in whatever way, um, but I will not, I will not cross this line. I will not forsake faithfulness to the Lord. I will not do that which is evil. But he's not saying that. He's, he's not saying pay no attention to that. What he's saying is that is this. That the governors are sent by God to punish, this is verse 14, to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is, by, it is God's will that by doing right you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So here the idea is not uh, uh, go do evil or go sell your faith, go apostate at the bidding of the governor. No, the answer is do good, be worthy of the praise of the people that you see every day. Don't give them any cause to see you as, as evil. And then in verse, verse 16, he says, live as free men. Yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. This is what it is to be a, a faithful servant of God, to do what he commands and to do so freely. Freedom is a word that's getting messed up today. Part of it has come to mean basically do whatever the heck you want. I mean, go do anything you want. That's what freedom is. Go do whatever you want. And the ancients did not understand freedom in that way. Freedom was meant to be the ability to do what is right and to mean it and to do it as an act of the will. 
And so he's calling them, live as free men who can do good of their own accord, of their own will. Yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil. To say, hey, don't use it as a pretext for opposing the emperor when the emperor is not asking you to do anything evil at all. Honor all men, he says in verse 17. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is Peter writing. He was martyred by the emperor. If it's Nero that he's writing about, he was martyred by Nero. And he submitted to it. So he doesn't mean do whatever the emperor tells you. Honor him. Be at peace. Do whatever you can to get peace. (laughs) And let me tell you, we find ourselves in a time in which it's very difficult to have peace with our leaders. Very hard sometimes. But we've seen a sense of what it means to do that this pa- these past few weeks. You know, we've had uh, city governments that have put shelter-in-place orders, and we're trying the best we can. I mean, the reason I'm doing this over video is to follow that order. Because it's God's will that they carry out this authority. And I might not like it, and I might, I might not think that it's the right thing to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to have peace. And I'm not being asked to do anything immoral, and I'm not being asked to do anything that goes against conviction. And in the midst of all this, we can still do, as a church, immense good. And in fact, I've seen over the last two weeks, Christians doing more good in two weeks than I have seen Christians do in a long, long time time because we're we're submitting to the governance that's before us and we're trying to be creative about how to live out lives of faithfulness as we do that and that's a wonderful thing to be pressed to do and then he turns to servants he turns to those who might even be termed slaves usually they're they're debtors who owe a debt to a master and he says to them directly servants See, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to the kind and gentle, but also to the overbearing. Why? You can only imagine being a servant to an overbearing master, one who makes you work way too hard, one who who is very mean, one who is very difficult. And he says, Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Why? Because he's saying, if you can do good in the midst of that and you can submit to that authority, then then you will be very, very, very blessed. And this war against your passions will be defeated. We can do that today. We can really do that. For one is approved, if mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. There are servants who are suffering unjustly under overbearing masters, and he says, you are approved if you, mindful of God, endure that pain. For what credit is it if, for, if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently? You do, and if you do wrong and are beaten for it, 
you take it patiently. So, so the question is, what if, what if you do something terribly wrong in the household and you're beaten for it and you take that beating patiently? Well, what does it matter? You did something wrong. But if you did something right, he says later, but if when you do right and suffer for it and you take it patiently, you have God's approval. So who else approval do you need? Do you need anybody else's approval if, if you're doing the right thing and you are beaten for it? And this is all meant to kind of carry over into the way that Christians are to operate, not just as Christians, but as a holy priesthood in the world. And the question is, how can we be a holy priesthood when we're not obedient and when we're not even seeking after holiness, but there's nothing more holy, and we see this in the very person of Jesus Christ upon the cross, submitting to suffering even when doing right. For to this, he says, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges justly. And this is, this is the biggest part of it at all, is that the Christian is not, at the end of the day, subject to the judgment of the civil authority. Now, we might very well be tried for crimes and put in prison, even sometimes for doing right. But that is not, it has nothing to do with the judgment of God. The judgment of God is perfect. The judgment of God is just. And submitting to that just judgment, we can receive life. And so Peter is calling upon these Christians, submit to the people that are in authority over you. Submit to it. It's important that you do this. We're Americans, and so this is very hard for us. But we often think that there's no other authority but me. I'm the authority. I'm the authority of my own life. I decide what's good for me. I decide what's good for, for you, and, uh, and I'm it. I, I make all my own decisions. That's what it means to be free. But the freedom in Peter's estimation and Peter's understanding is the ability to do what is right according to God's law and not that of the emperor. He himself, speaking again of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Well, how has this happened? How have they died to sin and been raised up to the righteous life? It has happened by being joined to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, by being buried with him in baptism. This is what Peter will speak about later. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, I want to say a bit about that last verse because it's so rich. It's so rich. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd. So the first word that he uses uh, when speaking about Jesus Christ is that of a shepherd. Uh, we have a wonderful window in the church here on, on, the, uh, on the epistle side of, of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. It's actually you know, like all our windows, they're, they're very much the standard windows, right? But, but he's there, the good shepherd, with, with his shepherd's crook, guarding the sheep, defending them, taking care of them, leading them to food, leading them to water 
You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd. That's the first word that he uses, to the shepherd. Now, a shepherd is different from the emperor. Would you agree? Yeah, a shepherd is different from the emperor. But is the shepherd going to lead you to do things that will draw the emperor's hatred and malice? Not really. Not all the time. It's going to lead you to do good. And if you suffer for that, then, then fine. And then he also refers to Jesus Christ in this way, not only as a shepherd, and this is a really wonderful term, but he also uses the word, uh, which is often translated in, in, uh, in modern translations, uh, guardian or overseer, but the word is actually episkopos. It refers directly to the office of bishop, saying that Jesus is the bishop of our souls. Now, I'll tell you a story about this past week. This past week, uh, uh, the vestry made the decision to go to uh, online uh, 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 communion, to celebrate the Eucharist online, live streamed. Uh, not everyone invited to be there. Uh, and I will tell you that uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, I was thick with a crisis of conscience. It was and it was before the city had even come down, come out with rulings, and and I and it and that happened on Tuesday, and I was sick over it. I said, "How could we do this? I mean, how on earth can we pull this? And this is this is this is immoral what we've done." I felt that bad about it. I was sitting there saying, "How can we close our doors to visitors during this time?" And thanks be to God that not only did the civil authorities weigh in, but the bishop weighed in later on in the week, on Thursday, I think, and, and gave us marching orders and said, no, this is what you're going to do. And I'm so thankful for it. I am so thankful to have a bishop who cares for my soul in Bishop Reed. I'm so thankful to have a bishop who gives of himself to me to look after me, who pastors me, who shepherds me, who cares for me, who takes care of me so that I can take care of you. I'm so thankful for that. And you know what? The great thing is when all that came, came through, I said, thanks be to God, all of that, all of that angst, all of that uh, crisis of conscience was wiped away because it wasn't my decision anymore. This is the glory of submitting to Jesus Christ even under duress of submitting to earthly authorities, even under duress, even when we're under this terrible COVID-19 uh, shelter-in-place order, even when that's happening, we can say, I'm, just, I'm going to submit to the earthly rulers. They're not asking me to do anything wrong. They're not asking me to do anything immoral. They're not asking me to do that. And in addition to that, the bishop isn't asking me to do anything immortal, immoral. The bishop is actually dispensing me from those obligations. And that's what the bishop did. He dispensed all of us in the diocese from, from uh, Sunday obligations. Dispensed it. So we, we can't do that. Thanks be to God for that. Because it means that we, our, our souls need not be troubled anymore because we've been given authority. And we can do it. We can live in that way and we can live exactly as we're commanded and we will do right. And if we suffer for that, then thanks be to God. But if we were to suffer for doing wrongly, either in the eyes of the civil authorities or in the eyes of church authority or especially in the eyes of Jesus Christ, then have mercy on us. But we're seeing that right now, that to submit to authority, the Christian cannot go wrong. Um, 
Thank you very much for being here. Uh, We're going to continue on next week with chapter 3, but in the meantime, let us pray. This is from page 532 of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, It's a wonderful prayer that's read on Good Friday, and also when a church is consecrated. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Good evening.